the harvest of your land. You shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall not leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. You shall not steal, you shall not deal falsely, you shall not lie to one another. You shall not swear by my name falsely, and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until the morning. You shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block behind, before the blind. You shall fear your God. I am the Lord. You shall do no injustice in the court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in the righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. Thank you, Rebecca. Ooh, there we go. It's good to see you all this morning as we continue this series on the prophets. I think I'm getting feedback from that monitor. Um, today we are looking primarily at the, uh, the Pentateuch, the five books of Moses. Um, that's where all the readings were from. Um, and I, Because I want, I want us to see... Uh, what Israel was obligated to do. So we're in the prophets. We're in a prophet Amos, and Amos is bringing judgment upon Israel. And one of the things that, that in fact, from, from a, a visible standpoint, the, the reason why Israel uh, was being judged by God was because of its treatment of the weak and the needy. And so uh, we're, I want to look at, at what God had told them to do uh, as he was forming them into a nation. So that's why we are so much in the Pentateuch this morning. But, um, you know, it's, it's, a, it's an interesting time, uh, this series, the timing of this series. I mean, you know, the government shut down. And it's over the uh, almost seven, it's about 760,000 people that we call dreamers. These, these men and women that were brought into the country uh, illegally as children by their parents, but have lived their whole lives and built lives here, and they're not documented. And so um, President Obama created a program, uh, DACA, as you've all heard in the news, I'm sure, and this, this provided a way for uh, these dreamers to stay in the country um, legally uh, for a time. Uh, President Trump uh, threatened to shut that program down, and said he would shut that program down at the beginning of March, and so Right now, it's at the crux of this um, conflict and stagnation in our government. And I have some, just some, some questions for us to think about this. Would there be conflict over DACA if economic prosperity and security were not issues? If we didn't worry about our well-being from a, from a security standpoint, from terrorists coming in, from drugs coming in, if we weren't worried about people coming in and taking our jobs. So security, big terms tossed around a lot, economic prosperity, okay, these things are on the forefronts of our minds. They're on the forefronts of uh, citizens, they're on the forefronts of non-citizens. But if we didn't have to think about that, and I throw out the, I mean, there's always selfish ambition, okay, there's always people 
striving for power and to use issues for political gain and for leverage. Okay, that's always going to be a part of human administration of, of a civil government. But if, if, we, if we set that aside and just look at the issues of security and economic prosperity, if that was not a concern, would we have this conflict? Another way to ask the question, if, our, if fear of our own well-being were not an issue, would there be conflict over DACA? Or if fear over our own well-being were not an issue, would we be more generous with those in our midst who are poor or who are in need? If we were not so concerned about our own problems, would we, there before, would we then be more ready to help those in need? And again, I'm, I'm trying to explain, and we're working on some of these ideas around prosperity and abundance and affluence and generosity and sharing um, and sacrificing and meeting the needs of the poor and, and the needy. And so we're, we're kind of building as we go here. Um, Jesus said, <clears throat> excuse me, Jesus said that the poor and the needy would always be a part of our social fabric. Always. The poor you will always have with you. Um, you know, and that was a response to Judas who complained about the woman that um, poured that expensive uh, perfume on Jesus' feet before he was crucified. And Judas, who stole money from the apostolic money bag, um, complained because obviously there'd be less money for him to steal since, since uh, this perfume was not sold. He said, well, that could have been sold and given to the poor. And Jesus says, you're always going to have the poor with you, but I'm here with you now and I'm not always going to be here. This woman has worshipped me with, with her abundance. But even in the nation of Israel, so, so last week we looked a lot on prosperity, and we're going to review a little bit of it as Rebecca read one of the passages this morning. So, but even in the nation of Israel where there was so much promise of abundance, okay, you're going to be, you're, you're going to be throwing out your food from last year because the, there's going to be so much as you're bringing in the food for this year. The crops are going to be overwhelming, you're going to be throwing out food, the grape, you're going to be, your mountains are going to be flowing and dripping with wine. Okay, so there's that abundance promised to Israel. But there's these stipulations about the poor and the needy. And I want to point out a passage, Exodus chapter 12, verse 37 and 38. So why is there going to be poor and needy in Israel, this place of abundance? And the people of Israel, so this passage is describing all after the plagues that God brought down upon Egypt for their oppression of Israel, it's describing the exodus. It's describing the people leaving Egypt. And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Sukkoth, about 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children. A mixed multitude also went up with them, and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. Now, this mixed multitude, okay, and the, tra the translation doesn't communicate in language that it would immediately um, help us understand this, but literally it's, and those of other races, other peoples, and so it's going to be certainly some Egyptians, but it's also going to be 
people from the surrounding countries that were living in Egypt. Why were they living in Egypt? People always went to Egypt because there was always famine in, the, in, the, in those areas. Okay? You remember reading the Old Testament? Uh, Abraham went to Egypt because of a famine. Um, Isaac went to Egypt because of a famine. So Joseph, Jacob, they went to Egypt because of a famine. So Egypt was a place of prosperity because of the Nile River. It wasn't dependent upon rains. It had this river that really was, the, it was kind of the breadbasket of the area. And so Egypt was this place where people gathered from all countries, all races, all nations. And so God just finished <laughs> devastating Egypt. And you have these people that are, that are kind of on the fringe. They're not Israelites. Right? They, they probably lost some firstborn children children and animals because it was the people of Israel that had taken the blood and wiped it on the doorpost and the angel of death came and killed all firstborn in Egypt. And so some of these people probably had lost firstborn. But you had these people and they observed the power and the deliverance of God. He just wiped out the most powerful nation on the planet. And so they're like, you know what? We're going to tag along with this nation. And that's what this describes. So Israel always had people living in their midst that were not Israelites. They always, and now, and these people would not be able to own land from generation to generation. Now they could buy land, but every 50th year was the year of Jubilee. And everybody was released from, from financial obligations and all of the land now, they, may not have, they didn't practice this faithfully, but all of the land that was purchased and exchanged hands went back to the original families. All right? And a non-Israelite could not own land from generation to generation to generation to generation. Now, they could buy land, use it for you know, 49 to one year. Okay, They could make a lot of money they would have to give back the land, but they would have all of this, these assets from their productive. So these people could build a prosperous life in the nation of Israel. You could even have non-Israelites uh, for a time, um, and this is crazy for us, but they could have slaves. So people back then would actually sell themselves to others uh, in order to pay off debts or to enter into a household where they would have some prosperity because they were not able to do it on their own. But non-Israelites would have to release those slaves, and Israelites would have to release those slaves. No, they were slaves to God. God said, this, everybody is a slave to me. Okay, you cannot have slaves um, that are Israelites. And so you have this, the presence of these... Um, other races, other peoples, sojourners, immigrants were always a part of the fabric of the nation of Israel. And the blessings of God are always going to attract outsiders. They could immediately see, you know, we may not be as prosperous as Israel, but we believe that we're going to prosper being attached to Israel. It's going to be better for us to prosper from Israel than any other nation. Look, what God, look who God is and look what God has done. And certainly they would have heard of the promises that God had been making to the nation of Israel. And so we have, again, 
In the, in the law that God gave Israel, the, the promise of this great abundance, food would never run out. Food would never run out. Wine and other sort of uh, affluent, luxurious material possessions would be overflowing. All right, that is the promise. That's what Rebecca read this morning. And so you also had the promise of security. So we didn't read this, but out of Leviticus, same, same set of passages, he says this. I will give peace in the land. You shall lie down. None shall make you afraid. And I will remove harmful beasts from the land, and the sword shall not go through your land. So natural disasters, okay? Foreign enemies that, come, that would come through to destroy them. You shall chase your enemies, and they shall fall before you by the sword. Five of you shall chase a hundred, and a hundred of you shall chase ten thousand, and your enemies shall fall before you by the sword. I will turn to you and make you fruitful and multiply you, and will confirm my covenant with you. So, um, my family is always going to be safe from generation to generation to generation. My family's going to grow. We will have more food than we ever would need. We're going to have more wine than we ever would need. All right? I mean, that, that is the promise that God gave them. And he's not talking about heaven. He's talking about life then in the land that they would be able to experience. That is the promise of the prosperity that God gave them. No threats at all. So why does God promise this type of abundance and this amount of security? Well, first of all, I believe that it is a reflection of his intent for humanity. Okay? Look at the Garden of Eden. All right, abundance, no lack, beauty. All right, so here he's trying to fashion a people. You know, and we think of life in ancient Israel, or think of life as Israel under the Old Testament. We think of ourselves under these laws. Uh, that's a long story as to why they got all these laws, but you can see that what God is doing is he is creating a people to experience an abundant prosperity. That is his big focus and concern for humanity. And the laws support this. The laws enable an abundant prosperity. All right, so that it, if the first reason, that why the abundance, why the prosperity, it is God's will for humanity. Second, it's not wrong to desire or delight when we have these things. God wanted them to delight and enjoy these things. And it brought him pleasure and joy, which is why he created humanity in the first place. He wanted to share who he was and what he was. Um, it's like parents giving gifts to their children. It delights us to see our children delighted. God wants us to delight in these things. Makes him happy, gives us joy. In fact, the promises for this material prosperity were the motivations that God gave Israel for them to follow him. Life will be good if you follow me. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. He who comes to God must believe, must, two things, believe that he exists and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. 
All right? He's a rewarder of those who seek him. God uses the promise of our prosperity to motivate us to follow him. It's a good thing. It's a good thing. All stemming from this idea that it is ultimately a reflection of God's purpose for humanity. Jesus said this. Oh, I didn't put it up there. There we did, yeah. Peter said, see, we've left our homes and followed you. This is after the, the rich young ruler comes to Jesus and Jesus tells him that he needs to sell everything that he has and give it to the poor and follow him. Peter says, we've left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and this time and in the age to come, eternal life. To desire, receive, and enjoy, and even delight in these things is to acknowledge the fulfillment of God's desires in your life. Now, we're reading from the Old Testament, okay? But I'm I'm showing you from, from the Gospels that these ideas are consistent with what Jesus was talking about when he was here. But they are precursors, okay? They are... They're not the whole story. (laughs) But it has to be recognized and realized and believed and engaged in order for us to fill the next part, which are the obligations. What are the obligations of abundance? Because God promises and delivers abundance and security in order that those who receive it would share with those who are not experiencing it. God promises abundance and security and prosperity so that they would be free and joyful to share with those in their midst that weren't experiencing it. I call this I didn't read this anyway. This is this is my idea. I don't I'm sure somebody's written about it because I'm not that smart. The circle of abundance. The circle of abundance. It begins with receiving. Because nothing we have is given. Is, is, we're not creators. <laughs> we're not creators. Everything that we have, we receive. And then we can enjoy what we receive with gratitude. And in our enjoyment that is abundant and full of thanksgiving, we then share, which then opens us up to receive more. Like Jesus himself said, to those who are faithful and responsible with little, I will give more. All right, now, here's the deal. Everybody receives. Everybody that is alive on this earth has received. Not everybody enjoys And not everybody enjoys with gratitude. And not everybody shares. In fact, I would say that unless you're enjoying with gratitude, you really can't share. Somewhere along this circle, most of us break down. Most of us break down. So what are the obligations that then God gives them? All right, so 
overwhelming abundance and prosperity, but it comes with some obligations now. And I don't, I mean, Rebecca read these passages, and I'm just going to go through them, but I, I want us to be cautious and aware of the categories of people. So the term that the scriptures use is sojourners, okay? This is, a sojourner in our minds is somebody that's traveling, okay? Uh, the people that he's talking about here, they're not on vacation, right? They're not just traveling. Sojourners literally means a pe- people of different races. We would call them immigrants, it's exactly what the term sojourners means, immigrants. Do not wrong an immigrant or oppress him, for you were immigrants in the land of Egypt, the scriptures say. You were just like them. Remember what it was like to live as an immigrant, because you were once immigrants, and treat them as you would want to be treated. Leviticus, when a stranger sojourns with you, in your land, you shall not do him wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. View immigrants as yourself. That's what he says. That's what he says. Now, if you are in the mindset of knowing and believing that God is going to abundantly prosper you, you're like, hey, okay, whew, we can do that. Because if I don't, he's going to destroy us. That's what he says. I will destroy you if you, do not, if you do not meet the needs of these people. So we've got immigrants. We've got widows and orphans. Do not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do, I will kill you with the sword. I'll be like, whoa, that's strong language. I tell you what, if you've watched or experienced oppression and abuse, what do you want to do to that abuser? If it's violent, and we're, you know, we're in this, this season of Martin Luther King Day, and, and Anna, at, at her uh, job, they brought in a survivor that lives here in the Twin Cities, a survivor of the concentration camps and the Holocaust. You watch those movies. We just watched uh, Marshall, the story about Thurgood Marshall, um, first African-American chief ju- or justice on the Supreme Court. Another story of racism and, and overcoming It's a great story. But when you watch those movies or hear those stories about these abusers, you, I mean, I do. I'm like, you know, those those people should be destroyed. For who are they to abuse others that are weaker than them? It is angering. And that anger you feel is, (laughs) it's a righteous anger. It is wrong. And that's what God said. I will destroy those who oppress those who are weak amongst them. So immigrants, widows and orphans, the poor. Okay, this, I love this passage. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap right up to the edge. Okay, If you're going for maximum efficiency in your harvesting, I'm going to bring judgment upon you. Don't reap or harvest right up to the edge. Don't gather the gleanings. Let the stuff that falls out of your basket or out of your hands fall to the ground and just leave it. You shall not strip your vineyard bare. Neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. Leave them for the poor and the sojourner. I am the Lord. So you can just imagine the people who were nervous about this. Oh, man, should I leave one yard? Or should I leave two rows of corn or three rows of corn? What does that mean? I need some more specifics here, God. 
But if you're thinking abundantly and generously, you're like, you know what, I'm going to leave. I'm going to leave a quarter of it. There's nothing stipulated in terms of how much. So if you don't go all the way to the edge, you could go to the last few rows, or you could leave like a third of it. God has promised them that they're going to have more food than they can eat and more wine than they can drink. So a person who's thinking with a mind of abundance and prosperity, who is enjoying what they have with gratitude and thanksgiving, recognizing that it all comes from God, is going to say, you know, I'm going to share. God gives to me abundantly. I'm going to share abundantly because then God is going to give me more and I'm going to share more. That's the mindset that God is wanting to develop in them. Day laborers. We would call this the working class, the working poor. The wages of the hired worker shall not remain with you all night until the morning. Pay them what they deserve immediately. Because they don't have stores and stores of assets. The vulnerable shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind. You know, you hear these stories about, about uh, people taking advantage of blind people or elderly people. That people do that. People do that. Look out, they look for the vulnerable people, they manipulate the vulnerable people, they take advantage of the vulnerable people. God knows that this is in the human heart. And it is selfish people that don't believe they're going to be taken care of. And then just general obligations. Do not steal, do not lie. In the courts, be just and fair. Why would anybody commit these injustices? People commit these injustices because they are operating out of a fear that they're not going to have. They're not going to have things to enjoy. They're not going to have their needs met. They're not going to have everything that they desire. They're greedy. There's a whole long list of things. But that is what motivates us to take advantage and oppress others. We're wanting to accumulate and meet our own desires without regard for the needs of the, those around us. That is what's driving it. It is ultimately stemming from unbelief about the goodness of God. It is an unbelief about the goodness of God to provide for us. So many passages in the Gospels about that Jesus is saying, listen, and, and Jake and Anna's song this morning, they sang it, a beautiful song and so appropriate for our series here. You have been so good. Who is, who is more beautifully dressed than the, than the, is it lilies? Yeah. No one. The birds have all of the food that they need. But these things are just so insignificant compared to us as humans and God's love and desire to care for us. So there's a connection between abundance and justice. If we don't sense abundance and don't believe in God's desire to abundantly provide for us and supply what we need, we will not enjoy with gratitude. We will not share. If we live lives that are thinking that we never have everything that we want, then we're going to be angry and discontent at God, and we are going to be stingy. You, you, you know, if I, I just, if I just look back over the last 20 years of my life, my income and my assets have grown over time. But you know, as your income and your assets grow, 
your needs grow, your desires grow. And no matter what your assets are or what you're making, you're always kind of pushing the edge, right? I mean, you're, you're saving, you're giving, you're spending, hopefully maybe some investing, right? But you're always kind of, it, we, we always, regardless of where we're at, will want and desire more and work to have more, right? That's just where we are, right? So we will always, if, we, if we're discontent with a little, we're going to be discontent with a lot, right? That's true. So we, we must learn to acknowledge what we've received, to enjoy it with gratitude and to share, whether we're at the, the bottom of the income bracket or the top of the income bracket. You can be greedy and poor or greedy and rich, or you can be generous and poor and generous and rich. We are constantly, we are constantly challenged to live this way. You know, in this, in this circle, um, we can't go full circle if we just receive. We can't go full circle if we just receive. We, we have to enjoy with gratitude. We have to share. And that is when true abundance is experienced. And that is, that is God's purpose for us as humanity. That's his, that's his desire for us. That is what is, it means to fully image God. To go around this full circle, receive, enjoy with gratitude, share, receive more. That, that is the full circle of abundance. But there's always, there's always challenges to this. Uh, we don't believe that, that God is good, and we don't believe that enjoying material prosperity is good. If we, if we kind of, you know, there have been generations and seasons and traditions within Christianity where, where minimalization is the ideal, we're not enjoying material benefits is the ideal. I mean, there's been seasons where we're not enjoying human sexuality as God give, gives it in marriage. That's been shunned upon. And so just this, a lot of it stems from this, this notion that can easily find its way into Christianity that says the flesh and anything material is evil and the spirit is good. And that's, it's simply wrong. It's always been a threat to vibrant, true Christianity. God has created us fleshly for a reason, and our eternity is fleshly. When we die, we don't become spirits that float to heaven. We die, and we wait for our bodies to be resurrected. We will be with spirit, with Christ, until he returns and resurrects all of the dead bodies. And then we're going to live in bodies for the rest of eternity. We live in bodies God gives to us in material, fleshly ways. But we've got to believe that that's good. And we've got, we are constantly battling the fear of not having enough, especially in a culture driven by greed and fear. You know, what, what's going to happen if we don't have two to three million dollars in assets when we retire? I mean, holy cow. That is what's thrown out there is what we will need to retire with. That's a fear-generating idea. Now, all kinds of... 
What happens if you don't have this kind of insurance or this variety of it? We have a lot of fear in our culture around material possessions and economic security and, and just plain old safety and security. But we are the richest nation in the world and the strongest nation in the world from a military standpoint. But these are, our greatest, these are some of our greatest fears. Am I going to be safe? Am I going to have enough money? There's conspicuous consumption. I didn't even know this was a term. You can see it. It's where you, it's where you have things that communicate that you're well off. And what the research has found is that, so, you know, labels on your clothes or on your cars or whatever. What these labels communicate is that you're not poor. And what they have found is that the, the lower economic classes spend more on these conspicuous expressions of affluence in order to communicate that they're not poor. And so we have this, this part of the spirit of our culture is, is, is to show that we're not poor and that we want to identify with the things of affluence and the things of wealth. And I'm going to talk more about that stuff next week in terms of why Israel failed even in the midst of this abundance. Even though we have what we need, this is a reality, another challenge. Even though we may have what we need, we don't feel abundantly supplied. So part of that might be we haven't completed the circle of abundance. You know, you're not going to feel the fullness of God's image in you as a human being or the fullness of the Spirit within you unless you complete the circle. So you're not going to feel abundantly supplied unless you receive what you have with joy and gratitude. You're not going to feel abundantly supplied until you are sharing with those who receive. And so, which comes first, the chicken or the egg? Well, you know, you've got to, Jesus says, where your heart is, your treasure will be. <clears throat> and everybody always says, well, I've got to wait till I feel it in my heart before I give. Well, that's one way of interpreting it. The other way of interpreting it is that, you know, maybe if I put something into something, my heart's going to follow. You know, if I gave you $10,000 of Apple stock and you never had any Apple stock before in your life, you'd start paying attention to Apple stock. Your mind would be thinking about, well, I've got $10,000 in Apple stock. I wonder how that's doing today. And so you'd download an app and put it on your phone so you could regularly check your Apple stock. See, your heart and your mind and your actions would start flowing after what you've invested in. So that's what Jesus was also teaching. Sometimes we can't wait till we feel like doing something. We need to acknowledge that something is right and true and believe that God is good and follow him on the basis of what he says. And then we will find our heart following along. But if you can't worship God with what you have, then for some reason you aren't enjoying it or you're, and you're disdaining it. And you're not able to share it generously. Let's look at some small things that I think any of us in here could enjoy. A hamburger or pizza. You guys all know that I love pizza. I build a pizza oven. You know why I like pizza so much and I, like, I build a pizza oven? Because I love sharing it. I had a hamburger yesterday from Red Cow. The double barrel's the best one. They make it out of ribeye and beef ribs and steak. It is an amazing hamburger. 
You just sit there, and after they bring it to you, thank God for this hamburger. <laughs> My girls were with me, and we're sharing hamburgers. It's beautiful. If you cannot thank God for pizza or for hamburgers, that's a problem. <laughs> now, you, put, you fill in the blank with the food you like. But Ecclesiastes teaches that there are a few things that we can enjoy as, hum as human beings, regardless of how much our assets we have. You can enjoy your work, the fruit of your labors, the food and the drink, your family, in the context of fearing God. You've got all you need. A garage. I pull into my garage. Lord God, I thank you for this garage. Why? Because I've had times in my life where I haven't had a garage, and that really stinks in this climate. Now, you may not have a garage. You know what God's doing in your absence of a garage? He's developing anticipation and gratitude for the day that you'll have a garage. And when you get a garage, you'll be able to enjoy it, and you can thank him for it. And maybe you could even share it. Kenny, when he first started coming to the church, he's like, hey, can I come over and use your garage? Absolutely. It was still like 10 below, and he had to work on his car, and I don't think he got his project done. But you can enjoy and share anything that you have. If you have health care at all, if you have some food, place to live, clothes to wear, a job, a family that loves you, you have got a lot. You've received, and you can enjoy it, and you can be grateful for it, and you can share it. Sometimes it's a challenge for us to fulfill this circle when we don't think that others deserve a share of what we have because we think that what we have is from our own hands. I've worked hard for this. Nobody deserves a cut of it. Those ungrateful, lazy people. Why give to the poor? They're all lazy. Well, laziness is a part of why people are poor, but it is not the whole story. In fact, if you read through the Proverbs, it's not even the majority of the story. A lot of people are poor because of being immigrants. They move into a place to start a better life. It takes a few generations to, to come to a place where you have the assets uh, because it, that just education and work and and. You are, if you have, you have, you have, most of you in here have what you have because of your parents. Right, so nothing that we have is from our own hands. Yeah, God has given us, we work, but God has given you the ability to work. He, he has given you the mind that you have. He's given the skills and capacities that you have. They're from your parents as well. The circumstances that you have, you know, the fact that you live in the United States of America is a, is a, at this time, is, is, a, is such a small percentage chance in terms of all of the world and all of history that you live at the time in the wealthiest nation of the world at its peak of abundant prosperity. So sometimes we're selfish because we are so, we're so convinced that what we have is from us. And, and we can't, we can't, we can't have any gratitude. Well, you've just stopped the circle. You're never going to experience fullness because you've stopped the circle. 
And so the, what is the way forward then? What is the way forward? We don't want to approach this stuff with guilt, all right? We cannot approach generosity and sharing and meeting needs with guilt because it stops the circle. Guilt's not a part of the circle. We have got to recognize and enjoy and be thankful and give out of joy. And thankfully, Christ has charted the course for us in the gospel. The gospel frees us from guilt. The gospel frees us. It is for freedom that Christ has freed us. It is for freedom. He provides an example. And we looked at this last week. Though he was rich, he became poor. So he looked upon humanity and saw that all of us were enslaved and oppressed to sin and the devil. And that the systems of the world had had been created to oppress and enslave people, rich and poor, great and small. He looked upon the world in his free state of being God, free, under no obligation, and said, you know what, I am going to free this world of Satan, sin, and death from the oppressive systems of this world, its economic systems, its political systems. I'm going to bring freedom. I'm going to bring the kingdom of God. But to do so, I'm going to have to become poor. I'm going to have to leave the freedom and the power and the glory of heaven, and I'm going to have to enter into that system. That's what he did. It's an example. All right, but we can't just look at Christ as an example and say, okay, I'm going to do what Christ did. We can't do that because we can't be Christ. None of us are God. None of us have been in the glories of heaven. We're all stuck here enslaved to Satan, sin, and death, the systems of this world. So he provides a way by fully entering into death, fully becoming becoming broken, fully experiencing injustice. His trial was a travesty of justice. False witnesses under the cloak of darkness, lying. This is a travesty of justice. He was abused by the ruler. So he entered into abuse. He entered into injustice. He entered into brokenness. He entered into poverty. And it killed him. And it killed him. So he he took that death and that abuse upon himself, that injustice upon himself, and he rose from the dead, proving that these things would no longer master humanity. And in that, he conquered Satan, sin, and death, the oppressive systems of the world, the injustices of the world. And he said, if you believe in me, if you believe in me, I will give you the power to do the same thing. I will put my spirit in you. I will put my spirit in you. But we still have the obligation to believe. We still have the obligation to believe. To believe, to believe in that gospel that you can't do it is to receive then the Holy Spirit and to acknowledge that Christ has done it and that Christ can do it in me and that Christ can give me the fullness of life. And then he puts his spirit in us and then Titus teaches that the spirit has renewed us and regenerated us. He has made us new. He has broken the shackles of slavery and he's brought us into this circle. He has given and we acknowledge what he has given and we receive it. 
And then with his spirit, we can step forward in faith and, and the gospel and say, you know what? I'm going to change the way I approach economics and prosperity and abundance. I'm going to abundantly enjoy what God has given me, whether it's a hamburger or a garage or a great salary, whatever. I'm going to enjoy what he's given me. I'm going to be thankful for what he's given me. And then I'm going to share as much as I can. And, that's, and the Spirit does that work in us, but we have to approach it in faith. Let me pray. Lord God, uh, thank you for the, the, the Pentateuch and the prophets and the, and the beauty of your kingdom. God, you are so good. You are so, so good. I love that song. So I pray, God, that you would overwhelm us as a people, wherever we're at, rich or poor, great or small, and that we would be able to uh, humbly receive and enjoy and show gratitude and share that we could just increasingly become a people that are experiencing the fullness and the image of you because of the great gospel of Jesus Christ and the overwhelming blessings that he has poured out on us. In your son's name we pray. Amen.